This is Maine Current's independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. Four of the Democratic challengers for Bruce Poliquin's congressional seat were in Orland last week, speaking on a panel organized by the Maine Common Good Coalition. Jonathan Fulford, Jared Golden, Tim Rich, and Lucas St. Clair took questions from a packed audience for close to two hours. A fifth candidate, Craig Olson, was unable to attend due to illness. WERU's Matt Murphy and John Greenman recorded the forum, and I've edited it into two segments. This is part one. Part two will air on Main Currents on Tuesday, December 19th at 4 p.m. So be sure to join us again next week at that time. Organizer Stacy Leafsong had some opening remarks before the panel was introduced. All right, well, welcome everybody to Empowering Mainers candidate panel for the Congressional CDT2 seat um, for 2018. Um, and thank you all for being here. This is really about all of us, and I'm so glad to see all of your faces here. So thank you. Um, I, um, just so that everyone knows, Craig Olson is sick, so he will not be here tonight. Um, I'd like to also take an opportunity to thank uh, Maine Common Good Coalition members that helped on this event. Beverly Roxby, Majo Kleeshin, Donna Gold, which I don't think she's here, and Hannah Hatfield um, that helped me work on this, and thank you for doing that good work. So I'm going to do an introduction, and then we're going to go to candidate introductions, and then we're going to go to your questions, which are the body of this event. So gather your questions together as we get assembled to give our introductions to you. Good evening. My name is Stacey Leafsong, and I'm the founder and leader of Maine Common Good Coalition. I started Maine Common Good Coalition in November of 2016 with the impetus of the 2016 national election. I started the group with the mission to give voice to those that are voiceless. We sit here tonight with a male group of candidates for CD2. Their voice is missing. <laughs> November 25th was the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women and Girls. The United Nations Women has launched 16 days of action culminating on December 10th. Currently, 41 million Americans live in poverty. The UN has sent Philip Alston to the US to investigate human rights violations as the US is the wealthiest nation in the world, while also having extreme poverty and suffering. Deep poverty has intensified in Maine since LePage took office and made sweeping cuts to safety net programs. There is no sign of lessening of the poverty rate in Maine. The new Republican Senate tax bill would further deepen extreme poverty. The $1.4 trillion added to the federal deficit would be caused by the bill will come at the expense of government transfers for middle and bottom households and pro programs like education, nutrition assistance, and Medicaid that have all demonstrated a tremendous impact on upward mobility. The poor would also be hit hard as a result of the bill by receiving less government aid for health care. Health insurance premiums would rise if the bill becomes law, leaving 4 million Americans to lose health insurance by 2019 and 13 million to lose insurance by 2027. As David Gruski states, the U.S. has an extraordinary ability to naturalize and accept extreme poverty. As Pope Francis says, poverty is not an accident. It is causes that must be recognized and removed for the good of so many of our brothers and sisters. Today, for my part of the 16 Days of Action movement, I will share with you these facts about Maine, women, violence, and poverty. In Maine, 14.9% of women live in poverty. The percentage of children living in po deep poverty in Maine has elevated to eight times the national average, faster than any other state. The percentage of, children, uh, 
Of families headed by a single mother in Maine, 39% live in poverty. Nationally, 35% of households headed by single mothers report being without food security. The National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty has identified domestic violence as a leading cause of homelessness and poverty for women. Nationally, one in four women have been the victims of severe physical violence by an intimate partner. In 2013, in Maine, a domestic violence assault was reported to the police every one hour and 35 minutes, creating a total of 5,487 criminal offenses. This reflects 47% of all assaults committed in that year. Only two-thirds of domestic violence assaults against women are reported from the 2015 survey of Maine women and girls. Increasingly, we, un we understand the long-term health impacts of exposure to domestic violence, which extend far beyond the immediate impacts of physical trauma. Women who experience domestic violence are at increased risk for a variety of health conditions. Domestic abuse has a clear impact on the economic well-being of women and children in Maine. Victims of domestic abuse reported that obtaining and keeping a job was difficult. 60% of victims surveyed experienced losing a job, and up to 96% reported a range of difficulties related to the actions of an abuser. Domestic violence homicides made up approximately half of Maine's homicides annually. According to a recent study, Maine ranks ninth among U.S. states in the rate of women killed by men. According to Gifford's Law Center, Maine, does law, Maine law does not require the surrender of firearms or ammunition by domestic abusers who have become prohibited from possessing firearms or ammunition under federal law, nor explicitly authorize or require the removal of firearms or ammunition at the scene of a domestic violence incident. <coughs> According to a recent Maine study, 32.1% of females surveyed have experienced rape or sexual assault at some point in their lives. A study of working teens found that 33% of girls experienced sexual harassment while at work, resulting in lower self-esteem, poor physical health, and mental health, and trauma symptoms. We know, that poverty we know that poverty disproportionately affects women and single mothers. Between 22 and 57% of all homeless women report that domestic violence was the immediate cause of their homelessness. 38% of dom all domestic violence victims become homeless <coughs> at some point in their lives. If we fail to address poverty, particularly amongst women and children, we perpetuate the cycle of poverty, inequality, and violence. If we, address, if we are addressing violence against women, we also must simultaneously address women in poverty. The two go hand in hand. As James Skagney said from the Portland's uh, Preble Street Homeless Shelter, extreme poverty is trauma. The 16 days of activism by UN Women's message is no woman or girl left behind. Millions globally have rallied behind the hashtag MeToo and other campaigns exposing the sheer magnitude of sexual harassment and other forms of violence <coughs> that women everywhere suffer every day. And as Aradanti, Aradati Roy said, another word is I must begin this again, it's important. Another world is not only possible, she is on her way. On a quiet day, I hear her breathing. Thank you. So we've got these terrific panelists here. So we'll start with Jonathan. And if Jonathan, you could introduce yourself and down the line in two or three minutes. OK, and I've got a watch here. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, 
Well, thank you everybody for being here tonight, and thank you Stacy and everybody for putting this together. Um, it's great to be here. Uh, my name is Jonathan Fulford. I live in Monroe. I'm a carpenter and builder, have been for the last 30 years. Before that, I was a farmer until I had kids. Um, and uh, I decided to run for office because of my concern around climate change. I could not look in my children, my grandchildren's eyes and reflect back to them confidence that they would have a good world waiting for them. And that is completely unacceptable. And I decided I had to do anything and everything within my power to make sure that the future which I want to have happen and come about is the one that actually does, not the one we're headed towards. Um, I say there's three things I guess I'm focused on really. If you're going to remember anything about where I'm, what I'm coming from, it's we have to address climate change. In order to address climate change, it will create more jobs in CD2 and around this entire country in every single town than any jobs program we've had. Because it's actually addressing a problem that is affecting us instead of creating jobs for the sake of creating jobs. I'm a builder. The way you create jobs is you fix something. right? You make something. So let's make something. Let's make a better world. Um, let's make a better future. The other one is I'd say is um, we need universal single-payer health care now. You know? We've waited too long. Francis Perkins was ready for it in 1933, and you know we should have had it then, and we, we certainly need it now. And as our healthcare system is torn apart, you know this is really the only path forward. And the third one would be that what's the biggest barrier for achieving any good, meaningful changes and the future we actually want and the and the present we want, whether it be you know broadband, you know cell, whatever, you know is the massive accumulation of wealth and power at the very top of our society and the gutting and looting of our entire economy and the control of our political system by those with great deal of wealth and power. This has to stop and this will free up the resources for actually for us to do the work which we need to do. So, and uh, I'm looking forward to your questions. So. Hey everyone, I'm Tim Rich. Um, I'm a seventh generation Mainer. My family's originally French Canadian. And we came down and we worked in the mills in Western Maine for a very long time. Um, my, my father never graduated from high school uh, and, and we had a lot of economic insecurity growing up. And, and for those of you who grew up poor, that's something you never forget. Um, I'm the, the first person on his side of the family to go to college. Uh, and after I graduated, I, I went into business and I, I was an early hire at a healthcare startup. Um, and between that and another business I've been involved in, I've had hands in helping create about 300 jobs in Maine. Um, after that, I went to work for the, the uh, Maine State Employees Association as a union organizer. Uh, and then I worked uh, on healthcare reform for the SCIU. And eventually, I opened a, a, a business I have now up in Bar Harbor called the Independent Cafe. Um, I actually have two notable distinctions in this race. I think I've created more jobs than anyone here, and I've also been the only person to be personally kicked out of a Trump rally by Donald Trump himself. Um, that was a bit of fun. We can talk about that later. Um, hey, you know, th there, there are a lot of issues that I care deeply about, and the reasons why I'm in this race are really because I'm tired of seeing my friends and family and the people who I grew up with and the people who I love suffer because of bad decisions made by politicians in Washington. Um, you know, I want to focus on a number of different things. Healthcare is certainly important. I see healthcare from a lot of different perspectives. I, I as I mentioned, helped grow a healthcare company. I've seen it from a union perspective. And now I see it from a small business perspective where I would love to give my employees healthcare, but I can't afford to. And as of my premium increase this year, I will no longer have healthcare because I can't afford it. 
Um, so that's that's huge, and that's something we need to wrap our, our heads around really quickly, and, and we need to do it in a universal system. Um, I personally prefer Medicare for all, but I'm open to other ideas as well. Um, I also think we need to look at, um, as Jonathan said, renewable energy. I think renewable energy can be the backbone of reviving the economy in rural Maine. In the last 10 years, we've lost 2,400 mill jobs alone. It used to be that you could graduate from high school in a place like Millinocket and walk into a job making $50,000 a year, and now you're lucky to work at McDonald's, and that has to stop. That's not acceptable. Um, we have incredible opportunity here with solar technology, with clustered wind farm technology, and with tidal power. And that's really important that we follow that and that we make that happen. Um, and the, the last issue, the one that's personally the closest to my heart, is the opioid epidemic in Maine. Um, about 15 years ago, my best friend overdosed on heroin, and I was supposed to be his college roommate. And if I hadn't backed out of the, the last minute, I can almost guarantee that I would have gone down that same road. Um, you know, we need to approach it from two perspectives. So we need to look at a, a patient-centered model where when someone's ready to detox and get off that drug, we have facilities available, we have detox available for them, but almost as important, we need to start going after pharmaceutical companies and physicians who overprescribe this poison. So there are people who need opioids, there are people with chronic pain, but they're prescribed 100 times more in this country than anywhere in Europe. And we can't be afraid to go after them, and we need to make sure they're held accountable. Thank you, guys. Good evening. Thank you all for coming out tonight. It's so great to see such a great big turnout. Uh, my name is Lucas St. Clair, and I was, um, I'm, I'm running for, for Congress because I love the state of Maine, and I feel like the state of Maine can do better. Um, I was born in northern Piscataquis County. Um, my parents have built a small cabin in the woods in the, in the late 60s, and I grew up there without any running water or electricity, and we lived off of a combined income of about $4,000 a year. It was an incredible way to grow up, uh, and it's been a long journey from where, where we were then to where we are now. Um, but what I learned in that journey is that it, it takes a lot of hard work and determination, uh, but also there's, there's a lot of, of support that comes along with it and investment in infrastructure, good roads, good schools, access to health care. All of those things make it possible to achieve the American dream. And we need to make sure that we're investing in those things now. In 2011, I took over our family foundation. It's called Elliottsville Plantation. And our effort was to create a national park in the Katahdin region. I worked on that uh, project for five years. And it's one of the most controversial projects that has happened in the state of Maine. Um, and when I got there, it was sort of the peak of the controversy. But what we did was I sat down in people's living rooms. I met them at the dump. I sat in their grocery stores, in their cafes, and had conversations and thousands of cups of coffee. And <laughs> we found places to agree, and we found ways to work together. And we didn't always just talk about the monument. We talked about our children, and we talked about our small businesses, and we talked about our fears and concerns and the hopes that we have for this incredible state. And in those living rooms, I, had, I said the same thing that, to them that I'll say to you today. Uh, I will always tell the truth. 
I will always wake up and work incredibly hard to give everyone an honest shake and a fair shake at, at what we want to do. And you'll always know where I stand. We may not always agree, but you'll always know the position that I'm going to take. And I feel like that is the type of leadership that we need in our state right now and certainly in, in the U.S. Congress. So thank you again for, for coming, and I look forward to hearing and answering your questions. How are you all doing tonight? Uh, great to see such a great turnout. Uh, thank you very much for coming out. And I want to thank Stacy for putting this together and all of uh, the fellow candidates for, for being here tonight. My name is Jared Golden. My wife, uh, Izzy, and I live in Lewiston, where for the last three years I, I've represented that community in the Maine State Legislature. And I currently serve as the House Majority Whip. So I've been on the front lines of battles fighting for what Democrats know and, and believe is right for, for three years now. And, and I've done that with my heart on my sleeve, and, and I've always spoken truth to power. Uh, I'll tell you, my principles are, are really set uh, in a belief that there's nothing greater that you can commit your life to than public service, uh, service to our communities, to our state, and, and to our country. Uh, I'm, I'm really proud to have earned the right to call myself a progressive leader in this state. Uh, what do I mean by that? I've stood on the House floor and been a, a voice of conscience and cast a vote against a state budget in 2015 that gave a tax cut to the wealthiest 1% in this state while at the same time cutting aid to asylum seekers. Uh, that would have cost uh, about one-tenth of 1% of our overall state budget. And that's the kind of vote that I am consistently prepared to take. Uh, from my perspective, if Democrats don't fight for the most vulnerable people in this state, then what do we stand for? Uh, that's very important to me. Listening to Stacy talk, I felt pretty emotional, I don't know about you, hearing about poverty, which is an issue that I think gets glossed over far too often here in this state. One in five kids in this state uh, are living in a food insecure household right now. And like Stacy said, under Paula Page's administration, totally unacceptable for Maine, the rate of childhood poverty has increased to eight times the national average. That, that's an embarrassment for that state, this state, and we can do better. Uh, in my time in the legislature, I fought for economic justice for people living in poverty, coming from downtown Lewis, and I can tell you I represent a lot of those people, and I care very deeply about them. I've stood by organized labor, in the Maine State Legislature, stood up for business against businesses that steal employees' wages. We call that wage theft, and it actually happens way more than you think. I've gone toe-to-toe -to -toe most recently with insurance companies to provide workers' compensation to firefighters diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. They were actually being denied those benefits, and struggled to bring resources to my community and others to deal with lead poisoning, which is actually a, a very large statewide problem. Uh, it's very prevalent in, in Lewiston, and that's a result of environmental pollution. Uh, these are the kinds of values that I'm going to bring to Congress with me, fighting for economic justice, fighting economic inequality, Medicare for all, absolutely. Uh, we need to get there one way or another. Um, a tax code that favors all of us instead of corporations and the super rich. I'm right there with you all in, in this fight. 
Uh, I want to thank you all for being here tonight. I'm looking forward to the conversation. And, and the final thing I'll say is it's time for a new generation of leaders to step up in Washington, here in the state of Maine, and at the community level. Uh, and I, I'm very proud to be a part of that movement and, and uh, you know, just excited to continue my political advocacy no matter what happens. So thank you so much. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. This forum was held in Orland on December 7th and featured four of the would-be challengers for Bruce Poliquin's congressional seat in 2018, Jonathan Fulford, Jared Golden, Tim Rich, and Lucas St. Clair. Craig Olson was unable to attend due to illness. So we'll go and we'll, we'll come right into questions now. So. Uh, my name is Rob Bauer. I live in Blue Hill. I've been in the seafood business for about 45 years. And um, I ran as a candidate for county commissioner, ran as an independent because of LD3, which has turned out to be a disaster for our communities because I felt that the Democrats were starting to become top-down and not down up to the top. And LD3 was a, was a sign of that. I do have a, I have a feeling about this election and it has to do with tribalism and there's a tribe here that nobody is representing but has to get hooked up to and that's the working waterfront and I want to I, I want to read to you a excerpt from the Portland Herald that took place a week ago down in the mid coast and it has to do with climate change has to do with working waterfront and has to do with how do we get that tribe to look at the tribe that looks at the windmills and thinks that's a good thing. How do we get those two tribes together? Because those two tribes are not coming together, and I want to read this to you. My name is Dustin Delano. I'm a 27-year-old lobsterman from Friendship. I find myself at a loss of words today. He was at a town meeting in Friendship where the selectmen voted to allow the cable from offshore wind to come in. <coughs> Completely frustrated and lost in which direction to go next. Last night I attended a Slexton's meeting in St. George as they were seeking public comment on allowing a cable to come ashore in Port Clyde, which will connect commercial wind turbines located south of Monhegan Island to the mainland. The fishing heritage in the Gulf of Maine is incredibly magnificent. For generations, my family and other families along the coast have worked together and made a living from the fruit of that sea. Now, in the year of 2017, this generational way of life is at risk and could possibly be ruined. And so I'd like to have the four candidates, how do you address this man's concern about renewable energy and his way of life? Can those two tribes come together? And go for it. Okay. Um. This is Jonathan Fulford. So uh, I ran for state senate for Waldo County, and so we have some uh, uh, some coastline there. And I made sure that I spoke with and had good relations with the lobstering fishing community there. And you know that yeah, it's a very distinct you know tribe if you want to call it that. You know the issues that we're facing in Waldo County were largely the dredge happening and the destruction of the. Um, the potential destruction of the bay fishery with mercury contamination from the sediments from the spoils. Uh, so I was outspoken on that and encouraged, you know, on that issue about trying to make sure that's protected. I think when you talk about the bigger picture of 
um, the threats to our fisheries. Climate change is going to be the biggest threat to our fisheries. And so with between ocean acidification and rising water temperatures, there's a very good chance that the lobster fishery will go extinct in the next 10 years or so. This certainly has gone economically extinct in southern New England, and it is pushing its way up with shell disease. So I think that um, actually the, the lobster fishing community's alliance with actually renewable energy is one where if you get past kind of the initial opposition, it's actually what has to happen in order to be any hope for that. And even... and transitioning to what are other fisheries that we can support, whether it be deep water mussel farming, whatever, to still keep those families, still have a viable economic future, uh, is going to be really important as we deal with the transitions that climate change are forcing upon us. So uh, I think just a, a broad, honest conversation about really what the true threats are and what, are the, what we need to do to tackle that. Um, that's where I'd start the conversation. And, and you know, the, the concerns I've heard about offshore wind uh, is the cable. Is there some study showing that lobster may not, lobsters may not tr cross the cable when it's, you know, under, and that's, that's science that needs to be explored a little bit more. So, but I think it's an honest discussion. So. This is Tim Rich. Um, I, I agree with Jonathan, and I have a feeling all four of us are going to be agreeing a lot tonight on a lot of things, I hope. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's interesting. So I grew up, my, my father lobstered for a while, and it's something that, uh, that family friends did and that I, I grew up around and was, was very uh, involved in when I was young. Um, you know, fishermen in Maine are kind of a crusty sort. I think we all know that. Um, and, and they're resistant to change. But they also are very proud of their work ethic and they're very proud of their heritage. And I think that's where we get them, and that's where we bring it together. <clears throat> Because the truth of the matter is, the Gulf of Maine is the fastest or second fastest warming body of water on the planet right now. And there won't be a lobster industry in 20 or 30 years if we don't get climate change under control. It's the same way you approach hunters. You know, um, somebody asked me the other day, how do you approach conservatives in rural Maine about climate change? And the truth is, I think almost 80% of moose calves were killed this year by ticks before they were even a year old. And that's directly because of climate change. We barely had ticks here 20, 30 years ago. So, so I think that's how you, you know, on one level, you make a point, well, you know, your future, your family's future is insecure. And on another level, you know, you, you, it's, it's a nickel and dime thing. I mean, Maine has one of the highest, Maine has the lowest electricity cost in New England, but one of the highest in the country. And the way you get rid of that, the way you lower that cost is through renewable energy. Um, one of the largest drivers of that cost is the fact that we have a dwindling population in rural parts of the state, but we need to keep up that infrastructure, and that's really expensive. But the more that we switch to solar, the more that we switch to offshore wind, the more those prices come down. The more we look at microgrid technology, the more those prices come down. And, and fishermen, anybody on the waterfront can appreciate that. This is Lucas St. Clair. So I would agree with the renewable energy aspect. Um, localized uh, community solar, wind, and renewable energy product, projects that are very localized, I think, is a solution, especially for a very rural and um, uh, very rural place like Maine that has communities that are far apart. We lose our competitive advantage with transmission. And so if, we, if all small communities can produce as much of their own energy, uh, and that includes wind, solar, potentially hydro if it can be done correctly, and, and biomass. And if biomass can be done correctly, um, where it, where it um, uses both steam, heat, and electricity, then we start getting into the realm of, of, um, of efficiency. 
And it's being done on college campuses around the state, and, um, and, and schools are, are institutional users are beginning to put solar. And so I think that is, that is a, a really uh, sort of smart solution for renewable energies. And I agree uh, with, with both Tim and Jonathan around climate change, ocean acidification. But this is not new. You know, this is, if you, you drive through Machias and you recognize that there once was a fishery there that existed that doesn't exist anymore. And we have transitioned and we will transition again. Um, there, is a, there is a lobster uh, fishery that is certainly changing right now and where that ends up we can't predict but the conversations that I've had with the Maine Lobstering Association predict that it's, they're going to continue their slow march toward Canadian waters. And so if that prediction comes to, comes to be, we'll, we'll be doing less harvesting of lobsters. But we have uh, a lot of herring. We have the ability to grow um, mussels and scallops and urchins. And there's, there's, a, there's a market that, that exists that we just have to capitalize and make this transition from lobsters. I also think the one last thing is access to the, to the waterfront and keeping waterfronts um, in, in balance between uh, recreation and tourism and working. And with, if we lose some of that working waterfront, it very rarely goes back to working if we, if we lose it. So holding on to that, um, it, I think it's great for a community for, uh, from an authenticity and cultural and heritage standpoint. It's what these main communities founded on. I mean, you turned on Old Mast Road to get here. There's a reason why it's called Mast Road. You know, the relationship between building ships and, and the sea it goes back, you know, it's on the flag, uh, uh, it's on our, in our state flag. So I think we need to make sure that we maintain some of that for our cultural identity and then also just to be able to transition into a 21st century fishing community, uh, we need to have access to the waterfront. This is Jared Golden. At a broader level, I think it's important to make sure that we're pulling people together into rooms like this, going out of our way to get... Uh, farmers in rural Maine sitting in a room with lobstermen from coastal Maine, uh, people from more urban areas, if you want to call it. I call Lewiston a town by, by national standards it is. But uh, getting all these people from different areas and different ways of, of making a living in a room to talk about the dangers of climate change uh, and identifying what some of the solutions that we can work together on is, is the first step. In, in, in my opinion, to trying to solve the issue that the individual was talking about. Um, you know, thinking about some of this, uh, look, I, I went out and actually pulled lobster traps back in, in August with Representative Bob Alley from Jonesport, uh, and, and just the pride that was so evident in, in, you know, the long career that he's had as a lobsterman, the fact that all of his children all have lobster boats <laughs> and are out there, uh, you know, carrying on that family tradition, um. I just, you know, it's not enough to tell people that we got to start planning for the transition to what comes next. Uh, we owe it to people to fight right now to try and preserve that traditional way of making a living that they love uh, and that they want to pass on to their children and their grandchildren beyond them. So when it comes to what we have to do right now, I think we all know that we're committed to doing whatever we can, to, can immediately to fight climate change and try and make sure that lobster you know, men can, and women can continue to make that, that, you know, live that lifestyle for many years to come. Uh, and not just accept that it's going to change, but thinking about the problem of a cable coming from, from offshore wind and, and how that impacts uh, a fishery and, and lobstermen, in my experience in government, too often what happens is we, we move too quickly 
with these types of projects without really getting down into the grassroots and in the local community to have those conversations first. And then what happens is these kinds of issues pop up and you get a lot of conflict. And, and as a result, sometimes money gets wasted, projects unravel or get delayed for a significantly long time and you, you lose the ability to make progress. Uh, Maine DOT is like, they're just known for, for doing that all the time with all kinds of projects. So I think the first thing uh, in, in politics is you also have a responsibility not just to pass legislation and advocate for it, but to provide oversight of how government implements these types of projects and really being active and getting out ahead of those types of problems, making sure before we move forward with this, we need to engage with that community uh, of lobstermen to make sure that we're addressing whatever concerns they might have and, and moving forward in a way where we can all work together is, is something that is, is a bit of a lost art in government, and we need to focus on that. If you're just joining us, this is Maine Currents on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. This forum was held in Orland on December 7th and featured four of the would-be challengers for Bruce Poliquin's congressional seat in 2018, Jonathan Fulford, Jared Golden, Tim Rich, and Lucas St. Clair. Craig Olson was unable to attend due to illness. Hi, I'm Tracy Helbuena. I'm um, the founder and co-leader of Midcoast Maine Indivisible. I'm actually going to be a moderator for Indivisible Waldo's um, CD2 panel in third week of January. And so for tonight, my question for you is, each of you specifically, strategically, how are you going to defeat Poliquin? <laughs> <laughs> It's a softball, right? Softball question. <laughs> this is Jared Golden. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, th there's a lot of strategy that's going to go on uh, in, into winning a, a, such a big race. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I've got I've got two elections under my belt right now, so I have a good feel for for the field <laughs> aspect of, of this whole thing. Uh, for me, it's it's really about getting out there. Um, I believe that Democrats can win by getting out and running a good, strong, old-school field campaign that hasn't been done the right way in a very long time. Uh, you got to get out there and talk to people face to face. When you're running for the state house, there's nothing more powerful than going door to door. Obviously, none of us can go to every door in, in Maine's second congressional district. But when you get out in front of a room full of people like this. You all have neighbors, family, and friends all over the state, and you got to get the word out about what you have to offer for the community <laughs> and also w about what is wrong with the representation that we've received from Bruce Poliquin. I think for all of us, it's going to be about demonstrating to the people of Maine that we are uh, based in this community, that we're genuine in what we have to say, honest and unafraid to stand and, and talk to people and tell us what we're going to stand for in Congress. Uh, if there's anything I've noticed about Congressman Poliquin, it's his unwillingness to level with people uh, face to face. Uh, the ways in which he's, you know, thrown up signs saying, uh, by appointment only in his congressional offices, I don't think has ever been done by any congressman or woman in, in this state. Uh, and so I think we have a responsibility to make very clear the contrast uh, in, in terms of, of just being open and honest the way everyone uh, in, in, in our own communities are. So uh, that's, that's really what, what I think it's going to be all about. This is Lucas St. Clair. Yeah, let's see, the congressman hasn't sat in front of a room like this in his entire political career. Uh, so that certainly is a juxtaposition between um, us and, and him. Um, there are a lot of things at, at play to, to beat the congressman. And um, 
I think Jared is right. It will take an aggressive field campaign. It will be about getting out and speaking with voters as much and as often as possible. Um, it will also take a robust uh, fundraising campaign. This is, it's going, he has a million and a half dollars in the bank. He sits on the financial services committee, and he is very wealthy himself. And so he can self-fund. And the reality of, of, a, of a big district that's 26,000 square miles like this one, uh, you, you can't do it. As Jared said, you can't do it um, by knocking on every door. So you have to have go up on TV and do radio and, and digital and have that, that aspect, and that all costs money. So there's, there's um, a, a competitiveness that um, will be wrapped up in fundraising. Um, and the reason why I think that I have a, a good chance to, to beat him is because I've beat him before. Uh, he was elected to Congress in 2014 um, when I started making a very uh, focused uh, attempt to get the National Monument created. And I met with him and his staff several dozen times in Washington and every office in, in the state and recognized and identified his weaknesses and then beat him at that and ultimately convinced the most powerful person in the world to create a national monument here in Maine. And he resisted it to, uh, through the following year after it was created. Um, and he had the governor on his side as well. So um, despite those kind of overwhelming uh, opposition forces, um, we, we were able to win. And so I'm confident that we'll be able to deploy those same types of skills to, to do it again at this time at the ballot box. This is Tim Rich. Uh, yeah, so I, so I agree that it's a, it's a complicated question. Um, you know, the, the, the truth of the matter is, is it doesn't come down to just money. And, you know, the fact is, uh, I've known Emily Kane a long time. I respect Emily Kane a lot. Emily Kane raised a lot of money, and Emily Kane lost by a lot. And, and I think we need to be honest about what's not working. And part of what's not working is, you know, there's, there's a real sense in these communities, in rural communities all across the state, that Democrats, Republicans, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because they've been left behind by the politicians in general. And, and I don't believe that's true, but I know that they believe that's true. So, so I think the key is getting in these communities. I think the key is working hard in these communities, one by one, every town, every city in the district. But I also think it's really important you know, Maine People's Alliance has done a great job at, at making sure that people are aware of what Bruce Poliquin has done, whether it's his health care vote or his tax vote or ducking into bathrooms or, or whatever it might be. Um, by the way, the bathroom's over there if you guys need to. Um, but but I, I think the most important part among all that is, is you've got to have a real vision for how to move Maine forward and for what our state and what our rural economies all around the country can be. You know, they can be self-sufficient. They can be economically prosperous. I mean, they can, they can get rid of economic inequality. And, and we all have to come together to do that. Now, the major issues affecting us today, issues like health care. My premium's more than double this year, and I imagine most of us in this room had the same experience. When it comes to issues like health care, when it comes to issues like jobs, when it comes to issues like energy costs, these aren't Republican or Democratic issues. These are main issues, and they're American issues. And they're really hurting the poorest among us who can't afford to pay them. So I think that's key. I think the key is to make sure that they, the working class in the state um, understands that we have their back and that we're fighting for them every single day. And, and I think that's the most important element. This is Jonathan Fulford. You. You are how we're going to win. Okay. You know, that, what we, that the rise of enthusiasm and engagement in progressive values and goals 
that has happened since Donald Trump has, was elected is the key to our success. Like whoever, you know, the only way to beat Poliquin is not going to be by raising more money than him. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to do more negative ads and beat him. That's been tried. You know, it's going to be grassroots progressive activism. You know, we saw it last year. We saw it fade when when a lot of the most progressive goals were not continued to be articulated by the Democratic Party. That divided the party, and it is kind of what we have to do is come together and actually recapture that energy and actually move forward with that. You know, it will not be won by a single candidate. It will be by the grassroots effort. When I ran against Mike Thibodeau and lost by half of 1% against the Senate president, it was because we had a kick. Well, we, we had an awesome <laughs> grassroots campaign. And, and what made that grassroots campaign take off, I think, was because of putting out a bold, positive vision of the future that everybody could rally behind. That's how we get people fired up, because that's when we're talking about what's really affecting people's lives and what's holding us back. That's how we're going to win. Again, you're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. This candidate forum was held in Orland on December 7th. You share so many opinions and, 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 and ideas. I wondered if you'd comment on what you think the job is that you're running for, because it's different than what you've ever done before. And it has really nothing to do with being a Republican or a Democrat. It has a lot to do, in the second district particularly, in how do you convince people who in the past have voted against their own interests for whatever reason. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a, that's, I mean, that's a huge problem, I think. I mean, how do you, how do you turn people around and, and, and essentially convince them? Now, you can do it, the campaigning and your experience and all that is, is all telling and all great, but it's a different kind of job, isn't it? It's a progressive job in the sense that you're, you're two people at the same time. You're listening to your constituents, and then you're having to be proactive uh, and not just be a, a, a spear carrier in the fourth row of the last phalanx, which is what Poliquin is. He just follows the party line, and we have really no representatives in the state of Maine who are actually fully aggressive in, turning, in terms of uh, proactively representing the kinds of things that would benefit us all. So how do you how do you do that? This is Lucas St. Clair. So I think just to clarify, once one of us has the job, how do we do the job? Is that what you mean? Or yeah, I mean it's it's an odd job. It's a two way job. You have to be you have two lobes. You're 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 Jekyll and Hyde, and 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 you can't you can't just be one without being the other to be successful. Right. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I and I think. One, the, probably the most important thing uh, for a congressman or woman in the second district of Maine is constituency services, and that's one of the most difficult things to do in a in a district that's this big. But you have to have offices, and you have to have a really great field staff that's willing to have as many meetings and visit as many businesses and 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 speak with as many constituents as possible on an ongoing basis. Because things that are happening in Orland and things that are happening in Eastport and Jackman and Presque Isle and Lewiston and Bangor are all vastly different. So you have to have a, an understanding of what's happening there. So a lot of energy and investment from your congressional budget office needs to be spent on constituency services. And then I think the next step is to make sure that you're sitting on the right committees. Congressman Poliquin sits on the Financial Services Committee. There is no financial services in the second district. He's there clearly for his own benefit. And that makes, that makes no sense at all. Um, but if, and if you look at what the congressmen and women before him have done, they sat on transportation, ag, appropriations, veterans affairs, 
things that really do affect people that live here. That is absolutely crucial because you can't know what's going on in the entire federal government at any one point. But you can know what's going on that will benefit your the people that you serve at the pleasure of. And I think that's a really important thing because you can get overwhelmed. And having worked with Poliquin, what he does, you know, he's an inch deep and a mile wide. And he spreads himself out so far that none of his staff know what's going on. He doesn't know what's going on. Therefore, he can never bring anything back to me. If you look at just the Small Business Administration, for example, they make small business SBA and innovation grants. Since Poliquin is elected, $2.2 million in SBA grants have been spent in the second district. In Massachusetts 8, which is in the Berkshires, $78 million in that same period of time. And it's only because the congressman there knows they exist and he knows how to connect them with the small businesses in his district. And so that's a really important thing to understand is, is where the resources in the government are and how they can directly uh, affect and nurture and, 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 and help the, the, the people that you serve with the pleasure of. This is Jared Golden. You know, one thing I'll disagree with you a little bit. I, I've got some experience, I think, that has me well prepared to go down to Congress, and I know what that place looks like and how it operates. Um, I started working in politics back in 2011. I spent two years down in Washington, D.C., working at a policy level. I came back up to Maine and worked in the Maine State Democratic office for a year before I ran for office, and I've been in uh, elected office in the Maine State Legislature for three years. Absolutely, constituent services is a great way to be a very effective leader in this community and help a lot of people. It's one of the most enjoyable things. Um, you know, sometimes people struggle to get resources that are out there for them. They can't get through to a real human being. Uh, they can't get a response back in a timely manner. And when a congressman's office or Congress Senator Collins' office or whatever it is picks up the phone and calls, well, people start moving a little bit faster. And that is certainly very important. But that's really a staff function. Uh, so just making sure that you're training your staff and that you've made clear that constituent services is a priority for them uh, is, one, is one important step. Uh, I want to be have a kind of a frank conversation for a second. I'm the House Majority Whip. It's my job to try and whip people into voting the caucus line and, and, and hold Democrats together. And... So I know what you're talking about, about Bruce Poliquin being, you know, four ranks uh, deep, you know, throwing a spear uh, for, for Paul Ryan. Uh, and I think he, he's very good at, at doing that. Um, in my experience, when a member of the Maine State Legislature comes into my office and says, I'm not voting for this bill and I really don't care what you do, um, I really respect that for starters, you know. Hey, this is not meeting the needs of my community right now. What am I supposed to say to that? other than really respect their courage to, you know, push back against that peer pressure that comes from within a caucus, a party caucus. Uh, and, and then what kind of leverage have they just created? Well, how can we amend this bill to meet the needs of your constituents, right? Or what do you need to bring back home to the people that you represent? It takes the courage to say no first to get, to, get there. You've got to have that in order to build power in a place like Washington, D.C., We've seen it with a lot of main political leaders. We don't see it with, with Bruce Poliquin at all. He surrenders his vote almost immediately without saying, what are you going to give me to bring home to my state? And so really, I think that's what it's all about, is you know, fighting and standing up for democratic values, but always having the moral courage to stand strong and stand outside your party leadership and say, no, 
this bill isn't ready, it's not doing anything for my district, and if you want my vote, then you're going to have to earn it. Tim Rich. Me? You know, I, I apologize, but could you repeat the question one more time? It's kind of a complicated question. I want to make sure I hit all your points. I don't know if I can remember it. <laughs> no, but it's an odd job in, in the sense that you're 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 doing what you're you're representing a constituency that's that's both Republican and Democrat, uh, and our, our and, and the second district is so different than the first district. So you really have a, a particular problem, and then you so you have to listen and all the rest. But then you have to represent it in the in the in the larger stage of, of governance. Can you just keep it a little bit brief because I know we've got lots of people oh, okay. want to ask oh, questions. Oh, okay. So I, I think I, I, think I kind of get it. Yeah, yeah, I think I kind of get it. Well, you know, I, I guess I, I disagree with Lucas and Jared a little bit on that. Um, I think constituent services is the baseline competency of, of a member of Congress, or it should be at the very least. I think, I think if you do nothing else well, you need to do that well. Now, now, I think you also need to, need to get beyond that, right? And how do you, I think what you're asking is, how do you effectively represent areas as culturally diverse as Lewiston, Bangor, where I'm from in Bar Harbor, Fort Kent, Presque Isle, et cetera? Um, and and, I, and I, I, I can think of a few examples. Um, so, so I mentioned earlier that I'm a Franco-American. And for a long time in the Mills and Western Maine and Lewiston and places like that, the issue that Franco, Franco struggled with is that you might get promoted to a supervisor, but you could never run the mill. You could never be president of the mill because there was an inherent racism that went on there. Now, there, there are two problems that kind of came out of that. And, and they're generational problems. They've been passed down. So one was that there, there is this feeling like there's a ceiling on your life and you can only go so far. And, and in addition to that, there is an anger and, and a disgust inside of you, inside of your heart. And, and now we might not have those mills anymore, but that, that has been passed down. And it's, it's the same for fishing communities now as it was for mill workers 50 years ago. And, and you, have, you have this feeling like your life has limitations, and you have this feeling like you're just angry about it. But you're not sure where that anger comes from. Now, you know, to me, when we talk about the larger picture and the larger scale of things, I think a member of Congress needs to be somebody who inspires people. A visionary, somebody who encourages people, somebody who convinces you that you can be more than you think you are. And, and I think that's so important. It's important for our children, but it's as important for, our, for our adults who've been handed a, a hard you know, road to hoe in life. And, and I think that it's, it's a real opportunity to, to change the whole dynamic of the state. Now, just to give you two quick examples, um, you know, uh, we went up to Millinocket and I met with the folks at Architaden who were, were really trying to do some great work in that town to revitalize that town. Now, now, there was a company called Cape Street that came in and that ran that mill, and they took it over, and they recognized pretty quickly they couldn't make money at it. So in the middle of the night, they took the equipment, and they shipped it out of town, and they sold it in Canada without really telling anybody. And they screwed over that community big time. They left the town with a million and a half dollar tax lien. They've, they've asked Bruce Poliquin to help with that tax lien, and he hasn't done anything. So they don't want it gone away, but they want somebody who they know has their back, who they know is going to work with them, and who can negotiate something like that down. Um, and actually, for the sake of time, I won't give you the second example. I'll let Jonathan have it. Jonathan Fulford. So I would have to agree that constituent services is your basic number one thing you have to do is you have to make sure that you make everybody's lives in your district go as well as possible, and you make sure you bring back every tax dollar you can into actually stimulating the economy and meeting the needs of the people in your district. Right? That's kind of like number one job. The other one, though, is that as a public person, 
you have an opportunity and I think responsibility to actually call out reality as it is instead of what is politically acceptable or might win you the most popularity in the votes, right? You have to actually call out what is actually the challenges we face and what are the best solutions that we have going forward and use that public visibility that you have to articulate that picture of now and a picture of how we're going to get to where we actually want to be. And if you do not use that, which Poliquin, I think, is unfortunately an incredibly good example of not using that strength. And I'd have to actually say that Paul LePage has done that really well. I don't agree with his understanding of what the current reality is, and I do not agree with his picture of where we need to get to. But he has used his position as a public person to create a, a story, right, and affect what we consider acceptable or what we consider possible. And I think that is the one of the responsibilities anybody, an elected official, or even just running for office needs to do, is we have to actually talk about what is true. So, and I think that's, I'm not sure if that's where you're heading at, but that's where I'm going at it. I would love to hear from each of you why you think that you are the most likely to beat Bruce Poliquin <laughs> over the other three. Tim Rich. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons behind that. Uh, you know, I mentioned before that my family's been in Maine for a long time. I, I grew up in a Republican family. I grew up in a conservative Catholic family. I grew up hunting and fishing and camping all over the woods in Maine. And, and I feel like that gives me a unique insight into the way that people who politically disagree with me think and feel. Um, you know, I, I kind of touched on it earlier. I, I don't believe that Republicans in the 2nd District love Bruce Poliquin. I really don't. I think, I think they are feeling desperate. I think they feel like politics has failed them. And, and I, I think that there's a confirmation bias. I think the fact that Poliquin snuck in the first time, you know, they, they know his name the second time. Maybe he hasn't done a great job, but maybe he hasn't screwed up that bad. Fortunately, we've been more public about that. And, and people are now more, more aware of how he doesn't represent them. Now, you know, the issue of, of how you're going to win that, it has to be strategic. Um, you know, you target certain areas, you target your votes, you know what your win number is, you figure all of that out. And you take them on on the issues. You present a, a different kind of main for the future, and and you don't back down. Um, you know, I, I think you need to go after Bruce Poliquin aggressively, but I think it's more important that that you present your ideas and why you think you can make Maine a better state. I think that's what it comes down to, and I think people are going to respond to that. Jonathan Fulford. My blue-collar background of working in the trades and doing farming, I think, is the greatest contrast to actually you know the life I've led to Bruce Poliquin's life. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, vote on what they see and what they, you know, about what a person's life is like than really their policies. So I think as far as that contrast, I think I just, I throw down pretty good. Um, and as far as policy, again, progressive issues have done better in CD2 than moderate Democrats in the recent elections. And that is something that, you know, I am strongly, con you know, committed to the progressive issues that face our society. So. Lucas St. Clair. Um, so I believe I'm smarter than him. I believe that I'll, <laughs> I'll work a lot. Why are you better than these guys? Uh, well, smart guys. Right. Um, I believe I, I will work harder, and I care more about the Maine and the district. Um, I grew up in the heart of it, and I worked on behalf of it for the last five years. I've spoken to, I'm, I'm sure... Um, thousands and thousands of people about um, issues that matter a lot to them and I've been able to uh, turn the tides on on some things that are, are very were very very controversial and very very complicated and 
Um, I know that I'm a, I'm a, I have the ability to sort of artic uh, to articulate the message that I want to articulate and and resonate with people in the region because I'm I'm from there. Jared Golden. I think first of all the breadth of my life experience. Uh, I've, I've grown up in, in a small rural town. I represent uh, one of the second largest urban area in Maine. So I certainly understand uh, you know both uh, you know the difference between different different ways of, of living in Maine. Um, Look, I, I, I've served in the Marine Corps Infantry and fought in Afghanistan and Iraq. I've learned a lot about leadership from that experience. I've seen the best of leadership and the worst of it. I've seen the best of humankind and the worst of it. Um, I know how to persevere through some pretty tough things. Uh, I, I've pushed a broom as a janitor in a motorhome center. I've made pizzas at night. I've checked IDs at a bar uh, outside uh, you know, the door in, in Lewiston. Um, you know, got my way through Bates College and got a great education. I've been a volunteer uh, school teacher in Afghanistan. Worked down in Washington, D.C. on policies, worked in the Maine State House, and my track record in the legislature speaks for itself. In three years there, I've worked my way up into being the House Assistant Majority Leader. I passed nine bills into law in three years in a divided government that Republicans controlled the Senate and Democrats the House. Like I said, I'm a proud progressive leader, but I know how to reach across the aisle and work in, in this political system to actually get things done and, and accomplish what I'm there to do. Uh, and, and lastly, I would say Bruce Poliquin himself gives me confidence that I'm the guy that can do it. <laughs> what I mean by that is, I think, important. On the day that I got into this race, within five minutes of my launching my campaign, the second question I took from a reporter was a tweet from Bruce Poliquin's office himself. They lined up the national NRA to attack me on the day that I got into this race. He scared of me. And, and he re he's revealed that himself by his own actions. You've been hearing Q&A with four of the would-be challengers for Bruce Poliquin's congressional seat in 2018. Jonathan Fulford, Jared Golden, Tim Rich, and Lucas St. Clair. Craig Olson was unable to attend due to illness. This forum was held in Orland on December 7th, organized by the Maine Common Good Coalition. We'll have Hour 2 of this forum on Maine Currents next week, Tuesday, December 19th at 4 p.m. You've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture every Tuesday afternoon at 4 o'clock. I'm Amy Brown. Matt Murphy and John Greenman recorded the audio for today's show. Keep it tuned here for Democracy Now! coming up next, followed by Jazz Alchemy, only here on your community radio station, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org.